are here on Mother's Day. Uh, I'd just like to say that I know both of the women that were spoken about uh, here this morning, and they are indeed how they have been represented. Uh, Carla is a woman of faith and wisdom uh, that I admire, and I could wish my mother-in-law, Karen's mom, on anybody, okay? Uh, a lot of people complain about their mother-in-law, but I have a great one, and uh, she really is neat. Um, so it's, it's, good to, uh, it's good to rise up and call these women blessed, because they are indeed uh, neat women. Uh, we're going to do something. I want to draw your attention to your bulletin. We're going to be doing some things. Uh, one thing that we've done in the past but haven't done in a while, and one thing that we have never done, at least as, as far as I'm aware in the history of our church, and I want to draw your attention to both of these things. First of all, our CBC marriage retreat that we've been talking about, well, maybe we'll do this if we get enough interest. We have enough interest. So we are going to do this uh, down in Carlinville, Illinois, our um, I don't know if it's the first annual, I don't think it is, I think we used to do it a number of times, but it's the first in a while, for sure. Um, we're going to do a marriage retreat this week, uh, this, this fall on a weekend, it'll be a Friday night, Saturday, Sunday. Those of you who do not go, we will still have a worship service here, although your pastor will be elsewhere. I will be on this, okay? So... Um, but those of you who want to go, it's $279, which sounds like a lot of money, except for uh, the fact that you consider it's two nights in a hotel-style uh, accommodation, you and your spouse. Uh, there are no children, no facilities for children on this, um, which some of you l ladies are thinking, man, this sounds good already. Um, <laughs> and, um, and it's buffet-style meals, six buffet-style meals, Friday night, three meals on Saturday, and then two meals on Sunday, a breakfast and a lunch, and we'd leave after lunch on Sunday. We'd have some, uh, some teaching time and a whole lot of time uh, for you to relax and uh, play with your spouse uh, at the racquetball courts or the basketball courts or swim in the pool or um, play on the lake or whatever. Uh, there's a lot of stuff to do and be a lot of fun. I encourage you to participate going to be fun. We're, and like I say, Karen and I are going. Um, the, for those of you that that is not an impediment to your going, we encourage you to go, <laughs> okay? Um, uh, also, coming up next month in June, uh, we are having our first, hopefully, annual family camp weekend. Uh, We're going to, on Saturday night, uh, or Saturday all afternoon and Saturday night, and then into the next day Sunday, uh, have a family weekend as a church up at Great Oaks Camp. Um, we'll have uh, an evening concert with Jeff and Samara around the campfire. Uh, I'm going to share a devotional uh, that evening as well, but there'll be uh, paddle boat wars. In fact, I have already challenged Pastor Jim and his crew uh, against me and mine uh, for paddle boat wars, um, and uh, uh, there'll be a lot of fun stuff to do. We're going to have church actually out there. There will not be a worship service here on the 20th, which is Father's Day. Um, there will not be a worship service here. It will all be out at Great Oaks Camp. We'll have our baptism service afterward, uh, and then those who want to stay and eat a meal in the dining hall will need you to let us know that because there is a cost for the meal. Uh, of $8 per person. 
and the uh, if you want to if you want to go out and stay the night, hang out. Uh, there's tent sites available. There's also electricity if you want to haul a camper out there. You can do that, uh, or you can stay in the lodge uh, with me and the rest of us uh, who do not like sleeping on the ground. Uh, <laughs> so. Uh, and that'll be handled, the cost for that will be on a donation basis. Um, the, you know, we as a church are going to just fund that, uh, but we would like to defray our expenses a little bit. So uh, if, you, uh, if you go out and you want to stay the night or just be there for the day or just come out Sunday, any of it is great, um, and we'll handle the cost on a donation basis. So that'll be exciting. It'll be something to look forward to. If you want to be baptized, I've already had a couple people talk to me about that. If you want to be baptized, uh, this is our annual opportunity to do that. We we would love to do that more often, but um, we have to schedule that when the weather is warm and the pond is open out at Great Oaks. So uh, if you'd like to be baptized, this would be a great opportunity to do that uh, on June 20th, okay? So uh, we're going to get into uh, the rest of, our, uh, rest of our time we'll spend together this morning uh, in Mark chapter 9. Um, and let me just begin by asking a question. Um, does God act on our behalf mostly or even solely on the basis of the faith that we have? What do you think? In other words, if I pray and ask God for something... Does he sit up there in heaven and go, well, let's see, how much faith does he have? Is she a woman of faith? Hmm. Is that the determining factor on whether or not God answers a prayer? Or does God, as some would say, no, your faith has, your faith has absolutely nothing to do with it. God has his plan, and he answers how he is going to decide uh, based solely on his plans and purpose and will. What do you think? Those are the kind of the two extremes. Uh, what does Jesus say about how God answers? We're going to find out, okay? You have your Bible, Mark chapter 9, verses 14 down to verse 32. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who was possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. O oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I put up with you? How long, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And so they brought him, and when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, 
Everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. And the spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. And the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. And after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and they were afraid to ask him about it. Last week, we saw that Jesus took three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up onto what was probably Mount Hermon, which is far to the north uh, in Israel. Um, It was the Mount of Transfiguration. It's about 12 miles from where Jesus had left the other disciples uh, in the city of Caesarea Philippi. And they see him transfigured. They see him completely transformed in his appearance. And they see his divine nature revealed with power, with glory. Uh, God the Father speaks from a cloud of glory on top of the mountain, just as he had spoken uh, to Moses and to all the people from Mount Sinai. He spoke on this mountain to the disciples. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus is there with Moses and Elijah. And we saw that after, after he is, comes down with the other disciples, that he's telling them that Elijah is going to come again, that Elijah has already come, the one who was to come uh, and announce the coming of Messiah. Elijah has already come. It's John the ba- it was John the Baptist who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. But that Elijah is going to come again. And we looked at Revelation 11 and saw how that was going to happen. Well, As this story starts off, Jesus and his disciples have walked the 12 miles back from Mount Hermon, back to Caesarea Philippi, and when they get there, Jesus and Peter and James and John, when they get there, the other nine disciples are in an argument with uh, all of the uh, teachers of the law who are gathered around, and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're probably waving their arms and, you know, gesticulating and, you know, all of that, and they're arguing. And the text doesn't tell us explicitly what's going on. But all of a sudden, Jesus shows up, and everybody goes, Aha! Someone who can settle the fight. And so everybody kind of shifts over to Jesus. And Jesus gets to his disciples, and he says, What were you arguing about? It's obvious they're having an argument. What are you arguing about? And Without waiting for the disciples to actually answer, this father speaks up and talks about his son who is possessed by this evil spirit. Now, let me tell you what, based on that, based on what happens, what I think the argument is about. Jesus' disciples, I think, are fighting with the teachers of the law because 
Jesus' disciples are saying he is the Messiah. And he has given us power like his to do the kinds of things that he is doing. Because the disciples have cast out lots of demons. They have preached uh, the message of Jesus all over the country. They've gone forth from one end of, of Israel to another. They've gone out preaching and teaching and done so with the power of Jesus, giving them the ability to minister. And they say, oh yeah, your rabbi is the Messiah, huh? And he has power, huh? And he can even give it to you. Yeah? Well, heal this boy. And they go, well, we'll show you. (laughs) And they can't do it. And that's pretty embarrassing, right? And so an argument ensues. Is Jesus really the Messiah or is he not? Obviously, what you just said about him wasn't true because you can't drive this demon out. And then Jesus shows up. Jesus is going to settle the argument. The disciples are very impressed, I think, by their own abilities and too little impressed with Jesus. And and so Jesus makes sure that that they get a curveball every once in a while. (laughs) And they strike out on this one. Because God is not going to allow his children to foster the illusion that their ministry success is all dependent upon them. It's dependent upon him, not upon them, that their ministry has succeeded up to this point. And so they can't drive this demon out. And he's going to ensure that they have to turn to him. So the crowd comes to, comes to Jesus and, um, and look at what Jesus says. This is the other reason I think this is what they are arguing about, whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. The father gives his answer. Teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that's robbed him of speech. It throws him into convulsions. He he goes into seizures. And, uh, And your disciples can't do anything about it. Look at what Jesus says. He says this, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I put up with you? Why would he say that? Why would he say that? It confused me. I got to be honest. I, I got to that point in the text and I went, what? This is why he's saying that. He's saying that because a whole bunch of people who have been arguing with his disciples do not believe that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. And so he indicts them and says, Oh, unbelieving generation. Because if they believed, they would know that when Jesus got there, that this thing is no big problem for Jesus. How long will I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And so when, when, the thing, when they, they bring the kid to Jesus, and as soon as this demon that's within this boy sees Jesus, immediately he goes into a seizure. Now, let me be clear here also. Uh, People in the ancient world understood the difference between demon possession and epilepsy, okay? I had epilepsy as a kid. Uh, I, I do not have it anymore. I haven't had a seizure in 30 years, okay? 
but they understood the difference just like we understand the difference. But this, this particular problem that this kid is having is not epilepsy. They're not confused, in other words. A lot of times people read their Bible and they go, well, they must have been confused. You know, this, what the kid needed was a little phenobarbital and he'd have got better. No. Um, demons do not respond to medication, <laughs> okay? And this kid does not need medicated. He needs healed. And so the thing throws, him, throws the boy into a convulsion on the ground, and Jesus says, how long has it been like this? And the father says, from childhood. It's been like this as long as I can remember. This boy has struggled with this demon. <sighs> Jesus has done up to, if you look at the Gospels, here's what you'll see. If you look at them closely, you'll see that Jesus' life is compressed in the Gospels to 43 days. And on those 43 days, he does 53 individual miracles. That's more than one per recorded day. And yet people still do not believe who he is. And so when the Father says, if you can do anything... Jesus reacts, and he says, if you can, if you can, everything is possible for him who believes. Uh, he doesn't condemn the man for his lack of faith. He just turns, his, turns the man's statement back into a question because he wants the man to understand that God, first of all, can do anything. And he wants the man, second of all, to understand what it will mean if, in fact, Jesus can do what nobody else could do. Right? Everything is possible for him who believes, right? If you, in other words, can God do anything? Yes. I think that's a safe assumption. No one else has been able to do anything. For your boy, all the way from childhood, not even my own disciples. Therefore, conclusion, what will it mean if I am able to? It will mean that I am exactly who I claim to be, the Messiah, the Son of God in the flesh. And look at the man's response. He says this. I think this is a fascinating statement. He says, I do believe. Help me overcome my un." belief anybody ever been there <laughs> where god makes a statement to you in his word or through his holy spirit speaks to your heart and you go okay i believe what you're saying is true but <laughs> i'm having a really hard time obeying on this one i'm really having a really hard time trusting you on this I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And look at what Jesus does. He looks around, he sees that the crowd is getting bigger, and he wants the man to believe who he is, and he doesn't want to be a public spectacle. And so he immediately, he tells the spirit, come out. And he's out with a shriek and a convulsion, 
and the boy looks like he's dead, but Jesus grabs him by the hand, pulls him to his feet, and hands him to his father. Why did he do that the way he did it? He didn't wait until the crowd got there. That's what I would have done. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. If I've got the ability to cast out demons nobody else can cast out, well, let's do this in front of a big crowd. I mean, let's get it on TV because this will be impressive and people will think, wow, he has a powerful ministry, okay? Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, he does the opposite of that. Before the crowd can even get there, he heals the boy because he is interested not in the crowd and not in the spectacle, but in helping the man and his boy. And so he heals immediately. He's trying to show this this man, I am who I claim to be. And therefore, if you trust me, if you trust me, anything is possible because I'm God in the flesh. Uh, (laughs) He goes inside right after this. You would think, you know, you've just done an incredible miracle. You've just... You've just done what nobody else can do, what the teachers of the law couldn't do, what Jesus' disciples couldn't do, what nobody else could do, because this has been going on for years. And I'm sure that this father, because he loves his son, has taken him to all kinds of people. Wouldn't, isn't that what you would do? It's what I would do if I love my kid and there's something wrong with them, I am going to wherever I can get it fixed. If it's Mayo Clinic, if it's the faith healer, we're going. Right? We've got to get this problem solved. And Jesus has just done what no one else could do. He's trying to convince this father who I am is who I say I am. I am the I am who spoke from the bush to Moses. I am God in the flesh. I am the Messiah because I can do what no one else can do. And he turns and he goes inside. Now you would think this would be a great opportunity to teach all these people. You see what just happened? Wasn't that show? Check out the exhibit right here. But he doesn't do that. He's more interested in teaching his disciples. Because at that point, what is really important is that his disciples get who he is. And what kind of Messiah he's going to be. And so they go inside and they ask him the obvious question. Okay, Jesus, how come we couldn't do it? And his answer is interesting. This kind only comes out by prayer. In other words, it comes out when you recognize the two important rules. That there is a God... And that you are not him. (laughs) Okay? And that you need to come to God and ask for his help. That there are some things ministerially which are beyond you. That as much as you can do mechanically, and there are a lot of things that you can do mechanically in ministry. You can visit people when they're sick. You can uh, teach the Bible. You can uh, even pray. But what you cannot do 
is fling yourself on the grace and mercy of God in an impossible situation and rely on his power and help and say, God, this is an impossible situation. I'm at the end of my resources. I don't have anything else. I've used up every bit of natural ability and talent and gifting that I have. This is a, this is a God situation. It has to be. Can you come through? And some situations in ministry are just like that. Uh, I remember years ago when I was in chapel at Dallas Theological Seminary, we had a chapel speaker who said, gentlemen, let me tell you what what the ministry is like. He, He spoke all week. He was a spiritual life speaker. Great guy, great preacher. And a life to back it up. And he says... Um, he said to all of us, he said, you guys are like Elijah. And what your job is to do is to take your stones and build your altar and arrange the wood and make the sacrifice and dig the ditch and fill it with water and then to fall on your face before God and pray for the fire of God to fall. Because that is what the ministry is like is that you do what God has called you to do, but you do so out of a sense of utter and complete dependence on his power to make it happen and have any lasting eternal value or significance. And Jesus is telling that to his disciples. There are some things that you can't mechanically do You can't rely on your skill, your wisdom, your power, your intelligence, your gifting. You have to fall on your face before God and call out to him because there are things that only God can do. And this is one of them. Um, Then look at what Jesus teaches them. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Now Jesus is going through Galilee and he doesn't want anybody to know that he's there because he's teaching his disciples and he says to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now again, this is part of the text that as I was studying through this week, it did not make sense to me why this is here. Because we know that Jesus said this, made this kind of a statement over and over again, but why is it right here that Mark felt it was really important that he tell us again that they didn't believe? It's because we are meant to understand a contrast between Jesus' disciples and the father of the demon-possessed boy. The father of the demon-possessed boy says, I do believe, help my unbelief. In other words, Jesus, I don't understand fully and totally what you're saying, but I'm ready to believe you. Help me overcome the areas where I don't understand. Look at what the disciples say. They did not understand what what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. In other words, they weren't honest enough to admit that they didn't even understand. And if they had, then Jesus could have clarified and said, here's what you don't understand, gentlemen. It's that I'm not the kind of Messiah you're expecting, at least not yet. 
There'll be a second coming, and then I will be the conquering king. But you've got to make room in your theology for Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our infirmities. The Lord was pleased to crush him and to lay on him the iniquity of us all. He is led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he was before his executioners. That's all going to happen, guys. That's talking about me. They didn't get any of that. They didn't understand until after the resurrection, in fact, who Jesus really was and what kind of Messiah he was supposed to be. They didn't have a spot to hang that. And so every time uh, that Jesus is explaining this, and he explains it over and over and over and over and over and over again. He looks out at them and gets dial tone. <laughs> okay. Does not compute. Does not register. Then they don't even ask. Why? Because they not only didn't have the faith of the father of the demon-possessed boy, they didn't have enough sense to ask. Not only that I don't believe what Jesus said, I don't believe with enough humility to even ask what he meant. It's only after everything has happened that they, all of a sudden, the light bulb comes on and they understand. Uh, now, now, let's just consider for a minute. Did Jesus settle the argument about whether or not he was the Messiah that the disciples claimed he was and that the teachers of the law said that he wasn't? Did he settle that argument? I'd have to answer that question in the affirmative. Yes, he did. He solved that problem. Uh, did people believe who he was as a result of what he did? The father did. I'll bet you that the boy did after he got healed. But not even his own disciples understood. And I'm sure the teachers of the law persisted in their opinion. Don't confuse me with the facts. Don't even confuse me with the evidence. I believe what I believe. I've already come to my conclusion. Uh, Jesus gave him a whole lot of help. And yet they didn't believe. He gave the man, father of this boy, a lot of help. Overcoming his unbelief. And he believed. Um, it is very, very difficult to trust God. When you really think about it, it really is. Because we are, we are being asked, first of all, to believe the word of a being that we can't see. That we communicate with, but do not hear an audible response most of the time. That when we ask for things, doesn't always give us what we want. And so we don't have definitive proof a lot of times of what is God's will and plan and what is simply coincidence or what seems to us coincidence. It's tough to trust God. It's right but it's hard 
And so a lot of us, in a lot of situations, find ourselves just like the father in this story. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. God wants us to trust him even when what we have in our life isn't what we want. Even when our expectations aren't going to be met. Are the disciples' expectations for what kind of Messiah Jesus is going to be going to be met or not? No. Is it, in fact, better for them and for us that they are not met? Yes, indeed, it is. Do they think when he tells them that their expectations are not going to be met, that it's going to be better for them that they're not? No. (laughs) They're not only confused, they're actively in opposition to the idea that Jesus would be a different kind of Messiah than the one of their expectations and hopes. And yet, dashing their expectations and hopes is going to be the key to their eternal life and salvation and ours too. And what I'm saying is this, bottom line. Does our faith make any difference to the outcome of God's plan? Yes. Is it the definitive factor? No. God has a plan and a purpose which is greater than our hopes and expectations and dreams. And so sometimes we are not going to get what we want out of our relationship with God. But God is is going to not give us that specifically because he has something better and greater and higher in mind. We might not agree that it is something better and greater and higher in mind that he has for us, but it still is. Let me just ask ask a few questions here by way of application on this text. First of all, do you recognize where your faith is weak and are you seeking to grow in it? This father makes a great statement. I do believe, help my unbelief. He recognizes where his faith is weak. I do believe, but I have some unbelief. And then he says, help me. In other words, I don't want to stay a person of weak faith. I don't want to continue to fail to trust you. So do you recognize where your faith is weak? Are you seeking to grow in it? Do you want your faith to grow? Now, don't answer that question yet. Think about it for a second. Okay? I heard Jim pray for patience for all of the mothers. I went, oh, boy. (laughs) Because how do you learn patience? By being put in situations which test your patience. Right? Thanks, Jim. (laughs) Okay. So do you want your faith to grow or not? How How does your faith grow? By being put in situations where your faith is tested. 
and where you will have to trust God even when you feel like there is no reason why you should. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, one of my favorite books of all time, Screwtape Letters, is a book that's, that's written by Lewis as if it's a senior demon writing letters to a younger demon on how to trip up Christians. And he has this great passage where he says, don't be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a child of the enemy, meaning God, looks up at an empty sky from which all trace of him seems to have vanished and yet still obeys. You will have times in your life, I will assure you, if you want your faith to grow, I will make you this promise, that you will have times when the heavens will seem as brass to you and you will call out to God and it will seem like your prayers are echoing off the ceiling. And what you do in that moment, whether you continue to trust God and obey Him, or whether you say, you know what? This is a sham and a fraud, and I'm not doing it anymore. What you do in that moment is going to determine the direction of your life afterward. And Jesus says, we're to pray, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Question number two, which do you trust more? Your abilities or God's power? It is real easy. If you are someone who is a little smarter than average, a little more gifted than the rest, a little more talented than people you know, a little more glib, a little more, uh, a little more skilled, to come to rely on all of those things that are gifts of God as if you are the one who is responsible for you being the way you are. So if you're smart, you tend to rely on your intellect. If you're a smooth talker, you tend to rely on that. If you're good at your job, you tend to wrap your identity around it. And to rely on things that are related to you and your ability and talent and giftedness. And yet there come situations where the gap between what has to happen and your ability is vast. And in fact, by your own effort, doesn't happen. So which do you trust more? Yourself or God? Your talent or his power? The disciples got a zero on this test. <laughs> they, they not only couldn't drive out the demon, they didn't understand why they couldn't. Which do you trust more? Your abilities and talents or God's power? Last question. 
Are you willing to trust God with his plan, even when your expectations and hopes and goals and dreams aren't going to be met? Are you willing to trust God even when everything that you had dreamed and fantasized and hoped for and prayed for and dreamed about doesn't happen? Or is your, is your love for God conditional? I will love you, obey you, serve you, follow you, as long as you do what I want. Or, in spite of the fact that you have not given me everything I dreamed and hoped and fantasized and, and prayed for, in spite of that, am I going to trust you? Let me give you some examples. If your child grows up in your house going to this church, going to Awana, going to Christian college, marrying a Christian man, one day walks away from the faith, are you going to trust God? If your spouse, whom you love, gets sick and then dies, are you going to trust God? If your finances, which have given you the lifestyle to which you have grown accustomed, and a nice car, and a nice home, and a dog, and a white picket fence, all of a sudden go down the flusher in an economic collapse, are you going to trust God? If you begin to have your health fail, And then you begin to slowly deteriorate at a young age and go into glory far earlier than you had planned. Are you going to trust God along the way? Even though none of these things are on our to-do list of stuff we would like to have happen before we die. Are you going to trust God with his plan even when it doesn't line up with yours? And are you in that instant going to say, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief? Let's pray.